And I invite you to look at your Bible, 1 Thessalonians, the end of chapter 3. And I'll also read a couple verses into chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, we're studying Paul's, probably his first epistle that he wrote to a church he planted in Thessalonica. This is uh, 1 Thessalonians. The word of the Lord, beloved. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Suppose you are a PCA pastor looking for another call, another place to minister. And you're in D.C. with your family, going to the museums, checking out the cherry blossoms. And you hear that there's this church in College Park, Wallace Presbyterian, that's actually going to be looking for a full-time pastor. So you decide to visit, spy clandestinely, check out the church. What are the things you're looking for in the next congregation in which you want to minister? What, what's really important to you? Well, commitment to the Bible, love for the truth of the Bible, check. Biblical worship with robust singing, check. Effective prayer, desperate people expressing Humble dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Check. Qualified officers, elders and deacons with a vision to equip the saints using their gifts for the work of ministry. Does that get a check? And how about a lovely building in a strategic location? Check. If you saw all of that at Wallace, that would actually be nothing unless there was what? Love. All of those wonderful graces that I know you embody and desire to see at Wallace amount to nothing if there's no love. This is what Paul says in the passage Rock read earlier from 1 Corinthians 13. It's stunning all prophecy, all knowledge, all faith, all manner of giving. Nothing without love. Now, if there's one church in the New Testament era that got that, what church was it? It's the Thessalonians. They're not an established church, but boy, they are full of love. 
Look again at verse 9 in chapter 4. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, even though he's going to. (laughs) You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers in all of Macedonia. Not only did they love one another in the church there, it overflowed into the region. So those believers prove that when the gospel transforms your heart, and it lays in the firm grip of the grace of Jesus, and you're filled with the mercy of Christ, and you're a person desperate for the word of God, and you stand in awe of the cross as a daily discipline, when you squeeze that heart, what oozes out? Love, the first fruit of the Spirit. Let me show you in our time together that Jesus is teaching you Four things about love based on the text. Number one, it's cause. Number two, it's extent. Number three, it's practice. And number four, it's goal. Number one, what is Jesus teaching us about love? It's cause. Look at verse 12 again. Paul's praying, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Paul is asking for something for the Thessalonians that can only be found in God. Only God can give it. And let me give you a couple reasons why. Number one, the reason God has to make them, I actually like the New American Standard better, cause you, not just make you, cause you, is because love is so much like God. So why does Paul say in verse 9, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another? God teaches what he does so incredibly well. God is a God of love, perfect love. The disciple John, whom we're told uh, Jesus loved, wrote this in his first epistle. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God. In other words, has the DNA of the love of God in him or her and knows God. Here's the point. God desires that the glory of his love be made visible on earth in our love. He is most passionate for his own glory. One of the ways God is glorified is that the God, the invisible God of love, is made visible in the way we love each other. And we know the love of God in the way he cares for us and provides for us and in the way he sacrificed his son for us. So I have the verse from Romans 5 for you. While we were still weak, translated, unable to give God what he required, unable to love God, unable to love each other, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. (laughs) Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for sinners, those who love themselves too much. (laughs) One will hardly Die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our love for each other is decidedly a response to God's love for us. 1 John 4.19, we love because he what? First loved us. So we're looking at the cause of love, and I'm making the point that 
only God can cause it because (laughs) he is love. And secondly, only God can cause it because love is so unlike us. Now, let's be clear. Lovey-dovey feelings is not what the Bible means by love. And the Bible tells you that your natural bent is self-love, self-promotion, self-protection. So biblical love just doesn't happen on earth. And let me give you one way to think about why that is. We tend to relate to one another the way we fundamentally relate to God. In other words, the fundamental way, the foundational way you relate to others is going to reflect your fundamental posture as you see yourself before God. And just to be overly simplistic, there's really only two ways of relating to God. One, you see yourself covered in mercy. Covered in mercy. Two, you see yourself coerced by duty. In other words, I know for myself, for a long time, I lived as a person who believed I had to obey God to get him to like me. I owed God this. God demands this. You give it. And what that creates is a very skewed view of what I owe other people. Jesus taught a parable comparing two people, the, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18, and he introduced the parable this way. He taught this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they are righteous and viewed others with contempt. One of the men saw himself needing to be covered in mercy. The other man, coerced by duty. I owe God this. I'm going to do my best to give it. And as a result, this person, because this person believed they were succeeding giving God what he required, viewed others with contempt. So if your fundamental way of relating to God is through the duty, you're coerced, you feel under this pressure, pressure to give God what he requires, if you think you're succeeding, you will likely become a person who is demanding, critical of other people. You won't have a lot of mercy and compassion. Why aren't you as good as I am? Buck up. Do your part. And Jesus gives these kind of people a nickname, Mr. or Mrs. Inspector. You miss the logs in your own eye, but you see all the specks in other people's eyes. You're really good at fault-finding. You're the person coerced by duty. (laughs) And there's actually another variation of that person. That's the person who... I've just described the person who thinks they're succeeding, giving God what he requires. Some of you feel like you're failing miserably giving God what he requires. And you retreat it into yourself, Mr. or Mrs. Introspection. You're focused on your own sin. You're focused on your own failures. And you also can't love people well because your focus is still on yourself. And you tend to be fearful and anxious and insecure. And you'll never hold anybody to another high standard because you know yourself you don't meet it. See that? Coerced by duty or covered in mercy. And this is my point. The law never gets you to show the love of God to other people. The law doesn't produce it. The law can prescribe the way of righteousness, beloved. It can't produce it. 
what produces love for other people is your experience of Jesus loving you in spite of your failure to give God what you owe him. That's what produces love. More on that in a minute. That's the first point. Paul prays, may God cause you to increase in love. And the idea of increase is abounding as it's overflowing. Look, when the, I think somebody left church, I think Fabi had to leave church today. When she got here, she said, I got to go home. Where's my husband? And uh, the reason is something, there's a pipe overflowing in her kitchen. Her kitchen's being flooded. When the pipes overflow, you can see it. When love abounds, you can see it. It's not mysterious. Secondly, it's extent. What are the two target populations Paul has in view when he says, I want you to increase in love for, what's the first target population? One another, and secondly, for all people. Paul echoes this again in Galatians 6 when he says, do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. There is a natural priority on loving one another in the church, a natural priority on that, but we never turn a blind eye to human need beyond us. We are called by God to alleviate human suffering, elevate human uh, uh, prospering beyond ourselves. Why? Many people will tell you because people are good and they deserve it. That's not the reason to do it. The reason to do good to all people is because in doing so, you are mirroring what we call the common grace of God, that God is good to all his creatures in spite of how they treat him. God sends his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God feeds the evil as well as good people. When we do good to all people, we are mirroring the heart of God that he is committed to the welfare of his creatures. And we have a privilege to mirror that. Number three, what is Jesus teaching you about love from this text? It's practice. I use the word practice from verse 10 where Paul writes, for indeed that is what you were doing. One translation says, this is what you are practicing. Why are they practicing love? Paul says they were taught to love by God and they caught it from Paul's example, right? Verse 12, just as we also do for you. Love was taught, love was caught, it was seen in action. So it raises the question, in what way is love practiced? This tells you that love is not fundamentally a feeling. How do you practice a feeling? Love is a skill. Love is a verb. And let me just tease out for you three verbs that capture the heart, I believe, of biblical love as, as, as we see it given to us in the Scriptures. First of all, love serves. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity to the flesh, but through love, serve one another. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that Paul seems to be implying that we could slip into this attitude, yay, I'm saved, no condemnation. Jesus has set me free from sin and death. Now I can kind of do what I want. And Paul is saying, no, now you can serve others. Really? You can serve others now. In the pattern of Jesus, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Think of the joy in the pattern of Jesus who got on his knees, 
Wash the disciples' feet. Servant par excellence. And beloved, where is a servant's eyes directed? Always at the needs of others. No servant walks into the dining room with where all the people of the house are sitting going, what do I need? What do I need? No, the servant by definition is, I'm here to meet your needs. Love serves. Secondly, love seeks what is good. And I'm getting that by fast-forwarding a little bit towards the end of the epistle, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. I have a wonderful, what I would call a functional definition of love. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, never pay back evil for evil, but always seek that which is good for one another and for all men. Seek that which is good. There's an echo of that in Romans 15.2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Again, this isn't an emotion. This isn't a feeling. What is love? Biblical love, here's a good definition for you. It's a commitment to give your best in the service of the other's good, if even in the face of their worst. It is a commitment, a resolve, a determination, a commitment to give your best, use your resources in the service of that person's good, if even in the face of their worst. Where do you see that demonstrated most vividly on earth? The cross. What were we giving Jesus? Scorn, derision, mocking, spitting in his face, and crucifying him. You sang it, ashamed I hear my mocking voice. You sang it earlier. What does Jesus give you in return for this? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We are giving Jesus our worst. He is giving us his best. That is biblical love, beloved. And therefore, I want you to see how love forces you to ask a question or more questions. Love says, what does my brother or sister need right now? What is good for them? What will build them up? And of course, that depends on the person and the circumstances. Sometimes what they need is correction or rebuke, sometimes encouragement, sometimes comfort, sometimes a listening ear, sometimes money, sometimes time, sometimes you lend them a book. But by virtue of asking the question, studying the situation, what do they need? I was doing some marriage counseling recently and we, we were talking about ways the one spouse had failed the other. And this one person said, I haven't studied my spouse. And I thought that was incredibly helpful. Translated, I haven't done a good job stopping, focusing on my spouse, asking the question, Who are they? How are they wired? What do they need? So that then I can love them. Spouses? Much studying going on? Now Paul says, I want you to do this more and more. If you have a New American Standard, it's excel still more. You guys are great at loving excel still more. Let's suppose that PCA pastor who visits clandestinely, who knows, maybe he's here today. I don't know. I have no idea. And he ends up being your pastor. 
In his first sermon, he says, you guys have all these wonderful things. I know you're a loving congregation, but what should, the next words out of his mouth should be what? Excel still more in the pattern of the Thessalonians. And that tells you that there are extra measures of work required to love biblically. So what I've got on the outline, I'm just teasing out some of the things that we might tend to miss that require extra thoughtfulness and intentionality on our parts if we're going to love this way. For example, love cares deeply how you impact people. You want to know how people experience you. I've run into some of you and you have no idea how I experience you, it seems to me. You have no idea how you come across. It's not loving. And I've probably done that to you, I'm sorry. As a rule, do you tend to be more caring and sympathetic and concerned or aloof, distracted and uninterested? Where are you on that continuum? If you say, Lord, I think I'm here, ask the Holy Spirit to move you this way. Are you more open, inviting, and warm, or as a rule, shy, self-protective, standoffish, and cold? If you find yourself here, you've got to know yourself. Study yourself so you can be more attentive to the way you're experienced. Are you disarming and vulnerable, or overbearing, dominating, and condescending? Are you more attentive and focused or controlling, self-absorbed, or demanding? See the continuum? And, you know, it might depend on the situation. What you had for breakfast that morning, I don't know. Are you more generally affirming of others or merely selfishly seeking approval with flattery? Are you engaging, interested, and inquisitive, or, as a rule, more unapproachable, critical, and self-promoting? So, what, do you know what impact you have on people? That's, love asks that question. Secondly, love slows down when you're sure you're right. Do you know this about human beings? When you're absolutely certain you're right, you're potentially your most dangerous. If you're certain you're in the right, say, well, thank you, Jesus. Not sure what this ever felt like. But let's get this under control because I may be wrong. Paul says in Galatians 5.26, don't become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. The hard work of love, and thirdly, love listens more than it speaks. Love listens more than it speaks. Some of you love to talk. And I'll bet you've experienced me when I just didn't stop talking about something. Love listens more than it speaks. And when love listens, excuse me, and when love speaks, it cares as much about what is said as how it's said. You know, some of you might have a prophet personality, and a prophet is God sort of called you to, here's what you need to say. Glory to God, we need prophets. <laughs> but prophets need to lace the truth, with gentleness, tenderness, compassion, how you say it is easily important as what you say. So Proverbs uh, 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, a gentle, uh, harsh word stirs up anger. And another thing to think about, you know, doing the hard work of love, love pushes through reasons for resistance. Here's what I mean. Sooner or later, how about boys and girls, 
boys and girls, are there, do you know reasons why your brothers and sisters bug you? Do you have reasons? Somebody said, no, God bless you. I, I, I was the youngest of three boys, and I got a boatload of reasons why I wouldn't like my older brothers. Right? We hurt each other. We say mean things. We, we don't love each other well. And actually, love doesn't happen until I'm pushing through those. Jesus said, hey, when you throw a party, don't invite the people who are going to invite you next week to a party. Invite the people who are never going to invite you to a party. Translated, love doesn't begin till you are not getting what you want. We tend to demand in relationships that you reciprocate, you respect me, you give me approval, you give me admiration, you cooperate with me. When you're not getting those things, now you have to decide whether or not you're going to love. Love hasn't started till you're not getting what you want, in a sense. Finally, just teasing out some of the biblical portrait of uh, love. Finally, no, no, that's not finally. I have love builds up others. Sorry, my bad. Will you, will you still love me, please? Romans fourteen nineteen. So let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Look, if you're going to build something, what do you need to have? A blueprint from an architect of what it looks like. So if I'm called to build you up, I need to know what I'm trying to build you into. And it's very interesting, the passage Rock read earlier from Leviticus 19, you know, love your neighbors yourself, take some time and go, read that whole passage, and what you'll get in that passage are very specific vignettes of love in action. Let me just tell you a couple of them. Concern for the poor, integrity in business transactions, using God's name carefully, prompt payment of wages, special care for the physically challenged, Integrity in your speech, a willingness to challenge or rebuke someone, a disposition to bless them. <laughs> These are all things of the ways that you love your neighbor. No wonder Paul says in Galatians 2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, now we're ready for the fourth point. Won't take long. What's the goal? Look at verse 13. Fascinating verse. He's just told them, I don't need to tell you about love, but I'm telling you about love anyway. You need to excel still more. Nobody in the New Testament world loves better than you Thessalonians. But excel still more so that the the Greek construction shows purpose. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What has Paul done with your attention? He has said, beloved congregation, as you are focused on loving one another now, this is intimately related to the second coming of Jesus in the future. There is some relationship between these things. What's his logic? The second coming of Jesus is the groom coming for his bride. Jesus teaches in the Gospel of John, I can't wait to have you with me. That is the language of a groom longing to be married and get going with things. Right? 
And when Jesus comes again, He wants to see reflected in the hearts of His bride, what? The glory of His holiness. How many of you brides who got married, how many of you people that aren't married want to get married someday, how many of you want to roll around in manure right before you walk down the aisle? I don't think any of you. Intuitively, we know I want to be spotless and beautiful at the wedding. Jesus is saying the same attitude in us. And so it forces you to ask what question? What is it that perfects my character? What is it that portends to greater holiness, greater godliness, greater moral beauty? What is it? What's the answer according to the sermon? This is not hard. Love. Love. Other-centered love, Paul is saying, is the thing that ultimately shapes your heart in moral glory. By implication, what weakens you as a person? Self-love. Self-promotion, self-protection, self-indulgence, selfishness, pride, the thing that comes real naturally for us. <laughs> so do you see what he is saying? Pride, getting for ourselves, you can only be rescued that from God giving you, giving of himself for you. And that's what we have in the last verse on the outline, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things, arguing from the greater to the lesser? If God will give you his son, you have absolutely everything necessary to live on this earth. But do you, do you sort of see what's going on in the verse? It's like there are two town hall meetings in heaven before Jesus came in the Incarnation. One is a town hall meeting for everybody that thinks God should spare his son. The other is a town hall meeting for everyone who thinks that God should give up his son. I suspect that all the angels, the myriads of angels, and all of creation would show up at this town hall meeting. Do not spare him. Do not spare him. Do not spare him. He is the priceless, beautiful, righteous son of God. Spare them for his enemies? You've got to be kidding. One person in the town hall meeting that said, give him up, who was it? Jesus, I will give up my life for your enemies so we can be married to them forever, beloved. When your eyes are on his cross, they will in love be fixed on others to love them. It's the only power on earth to pull it off. Let's pray. Lord, we know how incredibly hard it is to love as Jesus has loved us. But we have hope that as we see you in agony, dying on the cross, in love for us, taking our place where we deserve to be, not, not allowing that we would be delivered into hell, thank you that in that love, when we see you, we really can love other people this way. May Wallace be known for its love to the glory of Jesus, lover of our souls.
Amen.